Praise the Lord. This morning, what a gift and opportunity we have to turn to the Scriptures together and to submit ourselves to the Word of God and to behold the revelation of Jesus Christ, even in ages past, from the book of Psalms. And as you recall, we're in our series in Psalm 119, taking each section labeled for a Hebrew letter as the text for each successive sermon. This brings us to stanza number 9, which contains eight verses, all beginning with the Hebrew letter Teth, and we'll title this message, The Trial of Captivity. The aim of this morning's, I'm sorry, that was last time. Today it will be The Trial of False Witness, and this will be the ninth stanza. And this morning, our aim in preaching will be to increase our love and respect for the powerful and precious Word of God, to increase our love and our respect for the powerful and precious Word of God. And if that aim is accomplished in our hearts through the proclamation of His Word today, we will join the effects of the Word of God upon the psalmist himself as he records how his love and respect for the powerful and valuable Scriptures has increased through the course of his life and even through the course of trials. Thus, the trial of false witness is in view today as one example of a challenge that we, like the psalmist, might face on our pathway towards meeting the Lord face to face in glory and sanctification between now and then. But once again, as we have found seven other times, or eight other times at least, in the psalm, in Psalm 119, the major theme proves to be true once again. That is, the Word of God is sufficient for every trial including the trials of affliction, or in this case, more specifically, the trials of false witness. With that introduction, would you stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word today? And behold in your hearing the immutable and powerful and infallible words of our God in Psalm 119, 65 through 72 under the 10th section. Here is the Word of God. You have dwelt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. For I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So this, the great acrostic psalm in all of Scripture, continues in the same pattern that we have witnessed for the eight stanzas which precede it. That is to say that each verse, all eight of them, begin in the original language with the same Hebrew letter, teth. And just a reminder to you, even the way the literary form in which the original words were constructed is meant to illustrate the beauty and the order, the authority, and the glory of our God. And even the length of the psalm illustrates to us that the Word of God is powerful and sufficient, and His glory is such that it is worthy of 176-some verses in this glorious psalm just for us to have a little bit more of a grasp on its power and to love and respect it as such. 
Each verse of the ninth stanza of the great acrostic psalms, uh, psalm begins with the Hebrew letter Teth. Our author has learned painstakingly through the discipline of affliction that the covenant revelation, another term for the word of God, the word of God is sufficient for the trial of false witness, persecution that comes by way of lies from the wicked and rebellious unbelievers around him. <clears throat> he has realized, furthermore, that various afflictions of this sort, including the lies of the insolent, have served to instruct him in the statutes of his Lord and Savior. Verse 71, he says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Talk about uh, like judo move. You use the force of your enemy against him. When the enemy seeks to afflict his people, God grabs that punch, he pulls it, he uses the force of the enemy's plans to destroy to actually cause our faith and strength of our walk with him to grow. And this is one aspect that the psalmist recognizes. He used, the Lord used afflictions from enemies around him to cause him to grow in his understanding and appreciation of the statutes of his God. The psalmist proclaims that the Lord has delivered him from his trial and that the Lord has strengthened him by means of, his difficult, of this difficulty as well. In this way, the redeeming power of the Lord, <clears throat> the power of God is magnified all the more. He redeems us and he redeems our trials. Spurgeon summarizes the psalmist's experience as representative of all true believers. He remarks as follows, quote, The book of Providence, let me pause there. What is Providence? Well, our church has named that, but sometimes we take it for granted. Providence is all of God's purposes that unfold in time. It is his sovereign control of all facts, all details, all events of history to the purpose for which he has intended it, including those things that happen in our life. So everything that God has ordered to accomplish his will in our lives could be what Spurgeon refers to the book of Providence personally for us. So again, his quote, the book of Providence tallies with the book of promise. <clears throat> what we read in the page of inspiration, we meet with again in the leaves of our life story. The promises of God in scripture are echoed in the providence of God in our lives. This is the confession that the psalmist reminds us of and Spurgeon summarizes so poignantly. Though we are not certain exactly who the author of this great psalm is, stanzas like this one, number nine, the teth portion, appear to strengthen the case, I submit, for King David. Think of it. David, as a fugitive of the deranged and slanderous King Saul, he was certainly no stranger to the afflictions detailed in this section falsely accused by the highest authority in the nation at the time, David suffered under the predations and the accusations of King Saul. Furthermore, as a man after God's own heart, David would certainly have heeded the commandments for rulers in Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 20. Let me just remind you of this. Have you ever wondered how David in those years of exile, might have prepared himself to take the throne, knowing that he was God's chosen by the anointing oil of the prophet Samuel. Well, here is 
some enlightening text from Deuteronomy 18, verse 17, uh, or 16. When he sits on the throne, speaking of a future hypothetical king of Israel, of his kingdom, he, that is the king, shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. David in the right frame of mind, as a man after God's own heart, would rightly fear the Lord and his duty and responsibility as king of Israel. And thus take these admonitions seriously to write with his own hand the entirety of God's word and to weigh carefully and consider its implications for David's right rule, his jurisprudence. After all, the greater the responsibility, the greater the culpability if you do not serve God and certainly in his office as king in that authoritative position placed a great weight upon his shoulders to rule after God's own heart, and this would mean after God's own ways. Thus it makes sense that a man like David would be responsible for writing a psalm like 119, great length and care to consider the weight and importance, the value and the power, and to respect the statutes, the precepts, the principles, the standards, the law, and the word of Almighty God. <clears throat> he carefully considers every word of God's laws. He writes it down, the prospective king does, that is to say, with his own hand. And this would be preparation for his own jurisprudence. And one more way, Psalm 119, this section, uh, parallels with David's experiences the fact that David was a prosperous and beloved king. And as such, David would have firsthand experience with competing sources of power and happiness. A king has more options, and in his sins, sometimes he took them, one thinks of Bathsheba. But when it comes to riches, David was a man of integrity. Yes, he gathered riches, but it was for God's house. And as such, he demonstrated this value, verse 72 of our text, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Just like our government today, with the power of the sword in hand, has the ability to bring down confiscatory taxes and to rob and extort the people from most of what, if not all of what they earned. So David certainly had that power as a beloved king and thousands upon thousands of adept swords at his disposal. He had the ability to collect for himself thousands of pieces of gold and silver. He did not collect them for himself. He collected them to build the Lord a house. Why? because he recognized a higher value still than personal comfort and prosperity. And that was the word, the law, the precepts of the Lord, and so forth. This uh, text stanza in David's life, life furthermore implicitly address a kind of strategic question that I sometimes wrestle with. Do we suffer a disadvantage as the righteous by refusing to live according to the worldly values of our culture that has no qualms in taking advantage of us. Uh, if people are willing to lie about you in defense of oneself, should you be willing to lie about them? Is there, are we forced to fight fire with fire for mere survival? <clears throat> well, there are afflictions that the righteous suffer because they play by quote-unquote different rules. 
But in the end, God always has the last laugh. And on the final judgment, when the balances are weighed, those who had the greatest faith and the greatest authority will be demonstrated. Even if the cost of their faithfulness was to suffer some loss at the hands of the evil one, to be falsely accused and condemned, what does the New Testament tell us in the words of Jesus, the son of David? Blessed are you when they utter all kinds of things falsely against you for my name's sake. Those who have endured such things will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And thus, when we take the bigger picture worldview, who's ultimately in charge, Jesus, and what's ultimately of value, his word, we have grace to stand in a day of our own affliction when false accusations of the culture in which we live tell us that you're a hate monger and you're intolerant if you stand upon the word of God, if you, you are, um, are a discrim- one who would uh, discriminate and so forth. One thinks of these kinds of accusations, especially in this month right now, which is dedicated by the wicked culture in which we live as a so-called pride month to celebrate perverse sexual identities and the like. Thus, the testimony of David and the confession of the psalmist illustrate how God preserves and quips and exalts his servants, ones who suffer for his name's sake, the ones who have a higher calling and serve a greater God still. And so this leads us to the text itself. And let me give you a little, uh, uh, let me give you a heading here by which to consider several points this morning. We, like the psalmist, are fortified to endure afflictions, even afflictions like false witness, by embracing the word of God. So embracing the word of God was key to the psalmist to endure the afflictions. The word of God proved sufficient for this trial, even the trial of the lies of the insolent. So what elements of God's word does he emphasize in this portion? I submit four. It's authority, it's teachers, it's discriminating character, and its surpassing value. Organized by two verses apiece, we have, first of all, embracing the word of God and its authority. And this is necessary for us to be strengthened to endure afflictions, even that of the lies of the insolent or false accusation. 65, you have dwelt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. These two verses demonstrate that the psalmist has submitted to the authority of God's word. He looks to the Lord's dealings with him as an example of his dealings with others, model dealings. I submit by implication when he says, you have dwelt well with your servant, perhaps David or some other king or some other man who who enjoys some sort of authority and responsibility, acknowledges that God's dealings with him are the example and the standard and the ways that he is expected to deal with others. That is, the Lord, in faithfulness and consistency with his word, his statutes, and his precepts, has interacted with his servant in predictable and righteous ways. These provide for him an example of how to deal with others. He recognizes this and proclaims as much. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. By the way, The Word of God is the foundation for all dealings. It is the standard by which all claims to authority are judged. Insofar as a claim to authority falls short of the Word of God, it is indeed, by definition, illegitimate. The foundation of all legitimate authority is not might, who happens to be the strongest. It's not consent, the will of the majority, 
Democracy is a popular idolatrous term that's celebrated as a value in our society. The presumption is whatever's righteous, just, and true is that which the most people affirm. That just gives over to the mob, you know, the ability or the right to establish morality and ethics. And that is never the case. America is not a just or strong nation because most people agree with thus and so. America is only a just and strong nation, for instance, insofar as her values, her laws, her standards, her culture comports with the word of God. All legitimate authority is judged by God's word. All dealings of all people, whether institutions or individuals, are judged according to the dealings of the Lord. The standards, the reference point, the foundation, and the source for justice, for statutes, for precepts, and law is of and through and unto him. <clears throat> Under this model dealings, the psalmist recognizes three things in these first two verses. The authority of God's judgments, his knowledge, and his commandments. Uh, 66, you have dwelt well with your servant, 65, O Lord, according to your word. And then he's asking for the Lord to therefore equip him to do so likewise. In 66, he requests, he petitions the Lord, teach me good judgment, judgment, and knowledge, knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Three aspects of the word of God that will equip him in his call, judgment, knowledge, and commandments. What is judgment? The ability to tell good from evil, the ability to discern, the ability to apply the unchanging standard of the rule of God's word to that which can otherwise be fickle and confusing in our day-to-day -day lives. <clears throat> and this is actually the call of a good judge, is to take a difficult challenge before him to exercise good judgment and discernment and to rule according to the unchanging principle. Now, in the world in which we live, the wicked, idolatrous notions of postmodernism say that because there are some hard cases to judge, there is therefore no standard. That is a syllogism based on sophistry and foolishness. There is a standard. Now, we are not God. We are limited in our understanding. We cannot read men's hearts. Our judgment is always and only an approximation. But there is one who knows perfectly every intention of the human heart who sees the end from the beginning and nothing escapes his attention. And for him, his, when his word is applied, his every judgment is perfect, holy, just, true, inarguable, unimpeachable, cannot be overthrown, is not up for appeal or for review. And it's to this perfect judge and the judgments of the Lord that our author bows his soul, recognizing that they are the authority by which he can make difficult decisions. So he seeks the Lord's help in giving him a better understanding so that he can rule with discernment. How many times in our nation today is the argument against the immorality of abortion, is it opposed by someone who gives you a hard case? What is implied in that objection by the unbeliever? Some things are hard for us to rule on, therefore there is no ultimate justice or righteousness. Do not be fooled by this. Just because we are insufficient to see all things does not mean that God is not omniscient. Just because we are limited in our ability to weigh situations does not mean that God suffers any handicap in his judgments. His judgments are perfect. And you know what? Our judgments as a nation or as an individual would improve if we would do what the psalmist did and go humbly before him to seek his face and to value the things of him as better, more desirable, 
yea, than even thousands of gold and silver pieces. <coughs> Excuse me. Furthermore, knowledge. In a universe of infinite facts, what compendium will serve us well? It's kind of a philosophical question. I asked in family worship the other day of our older kids, how many facts are there in history? How many facts are there in the universe? How many details or instances of knowledge are there out there? Well, the answer is virtually infinite. So in a world of infinite facts, how do we sort and discriminate and order our lives and our understanding? Well, we must look to one who knows and orders all for organizing principles to know what is what the scriptures and other places call the beginning of knowledge. You can go out there and you can spend the rest of your life and tens of thousands of hours. Is that what they say it takes to be an expert at something? To be an expert at the most obscure corner of human understanding, the most obscure element of human skill. And you can waste an entire life on, on, in, in a thousand rabbit trails, especially with the advent of the inter internet, the great aggregation of all useless knowledge ever thought of by the whims of man, now available at a button's push and for your, you know, uh, useless amusement. Not to say that there, are, there is good stuff available on the internet. The question is, how do you know the difference? And you know the difference when you understand that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And that which acknowledges him as the source and authority and the foundation of what's valuable and true, and that which is the standard of what is righteous and what is wicked is the beginning point. And only here will you be taught good knowledge. One may know a lot of things, but that's a lot different than wisdom. One may have a vast array, a catalog in his brain of all sorts of facts, but that is of little value if he does not know how to sort them in his own mind. Therefore, the psalmist cries out, teach me good judgment and knowledge. He needs the kind of knowledge that he would glean if he, as a king, would take seriously the command in Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 20 that we read before. That is to commit to memory and therefore application and to write down and therefore discipline the whole of what God has set forth in his word. Those principles that are illustrated in the case law of the Old Testament. Those abiding standards of morality that form the bedrock of correct understanding. And then finally, commandments. Think of Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments that the Lord has given. These, I submit to you, are the order upon which all just societies are built. When Noah left the ark in basic, he was given similar instructions. For man's life, I require a life in Genesis 9. We deduce from that, of course, thou shalt not kill. God adds to this prohibition other commandments to give us the framework for how to order ourselves. And therefore, our society will always be seeking for some grounding and some order. They'll always be lost in crime and confusion until they affirm that there is no other God than the one true God. And his name is not to be taken in vain. And his day, his, and the worship of the, of the same of him is to be considered holy. And, and uh, as such, our relationship with each other is to be governed. That is, we are not to steal, but understand that the Lord has delegated his property according to principles of stewardship, and we are therefore to respect them and therefore to, re to love our neighbor. Neither shall we steal his wife. Thou shalt not commit adultery or covet your neighbor's possessions. It is not justice that all material will be shared equally. Karl Marx is defeated by the 10th commandment and so forth. These are examples of the commandments of the Lord, understood and applied, which form the basis of the authority by which a good king or just a person who understands God's world ought to rule and ought to sort their thoughts. 
Therefore, we are fortified to endure afflictions, even the false witness of others, by shoring ourselves up in the authority of God's Word, recognizing His model dealings and seeking His judgments, His knowledge, and His commandments. And when you have the certainty of the Christian worldview undergirding you, and the assurance of an eternal life ahead of you, and a sovereign God who rules all over all, who will keep you along the way, suddenly your enemies become about this big. Suddenly you see yourself ruling at the right hand of Christ, and all of his enemies who scream at the top of their lungs, I am God, are crushed like ants under his cosmic heel of justice. So it will be in the last day, and our faith in the meantime gives us strength to stand. Major point number two, we are fortified to endure afflictions, embracing the word of God and its teachers. There are different ways that God teaches us his word, and the psalmist acknowledges as much in 67 and 68. He says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. I have a question for you, kids. Who appreciated the blessings of the father more? The prodigal son or the son who stayed home the whole time? Who appreciated the father's blessings more? Uh, good job, Theo, the prodigal. What the prodigal was taught in his strain was the value of his father's estate. Kids, one more question. When the prodigal finally woke up and realized he was an idiot, what was he doing? What was the prodigal doing when he finally said, I should go back to my father's house? Does anyone remember? He was eating something. You guys remember? Pig food. Very good, Owen. When the prodigal in the sow, or alongside the sows and the boars of these domesticated animals, as a servant of the lowly pig farmer, these, by the way, culturally understood as unclean animals, had joined them in their same diet, on all fours, kneeling before a trough of pig food, he was taught something, that the wages of sin is sloth and death and impurity and degradation and in uh, this undignified shamefulness. The prodigal knew shame. In his strain from the Lord, God sovereignly used his wanderings to teach him of the value of his father's house. You know, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We all know what it's like to take for granted the blessing and privilege of the father's house. But when we realize the undignified horror of our own sin, eating alongside the pigs from the trough of what this world and this culture says is desirable, and will make one wise, when we realize it's pig food, then our eyes open to appreciate the value of the Father's house. Thus, the Lord uses by his grace, through his plan of redemption, through the gospel, saving you from your sin, even your own wanderings, as a teacher to bring you to Christ. This, by the way, is a great prayer for those who are lost among your loved ones or family members or friends. There may be those out there who are just eating all the slop of what culture, you know, LGBTQ affirmation is a huge one. Slop, eating at the pig's food. Oh, the government will save us from everything. Slop, eating. I'm just thinking of the news and these, you know, promises and virtues that are broadcast from the pig trough of our society today. And there they are just consuming all of this. You know, abortion is a women's rights. Another one that has come up as a hot topic by virtue of the Supreme Court's deliberations of late. Oh, and you just eat that slop. 
but at a certain point, pray that God would awaken, awaken you to the diet of self-destructive, social, suicidal pig food and come to your senses and say, you know what? My father's house was awesome. I am made in the image of my father God. Within him and his rules and expectations on his estate is the thriving fields of harvest that I was always fed by and that loving, unconditional acceptance of his home and the table before which I was always welcome. I'm sorry, Lord, for squandering my mind and my thoughts and my emotions, my feelings, my pursuits, my ambitions, and my money on all the whoring pleasures of this wicked world. And this is the heart of the prodigal upon repentance. And this is how the Lord uses affliction when we are astray to teach us his word. But now I keep your word. Like the young people rightly answered before, the prodigal now redeemed respects and honors and appreciates the father's estate that much more. He will keep his father's word. Son, I have a job for you. Yes, sir. Joyfully answer the father's heeding, knowing the alternative, eating slop the pig's trough. Teach me your statutes, he says. <clears throat> now I keep your word. You are good, good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Affliction is a teacher. Christianity is marked by sovereignty and suffering. And this, of course, culminates in its highest picture in Jesus. God had purposes in Jesus' affliction. As we read Hebrews 5, 7 through 10, it says there that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. And this obedience is not, he didn't know what righteousness was and then he learned it by what he suffered. No, it's a fulfillment of all righteousness. In other words, Jesus submitting to the will of the Father and enduring the afflictions that accompanied his humanity, taking on flesh, and enduring the suffering that God had prescribed, the Father had prescribed to him to take upon us. That was the obedient or that was the necessary condition that Jesus obediently fulfilled in order to secure our redemption. But we, in a sense, likewise, learn obedience through afflictions. As I said before, sometimes God will bring hardship in order to, for us to realize that he alone is our portion. Sometimes God sends us a trial that's so big that only he can provide the solution for it. Sometimes you're at a loss bigger than what any insurance company will underwrite and you have only the Lord to turn. Sometimes you're at a, at a, a state of intense national crisis which our forefathers recognize that there only remains an appeal to heaven. Sometimes a person has succumbed to death and there's no way that you can bring them back again. They live only in your memory. And this is a problem that's too big for any human solution. And therefore, you must trust in the God who raises the dead to be reunited with your God-fearing loved one one day. And thus, through afflictions, God teaches us that he, his word is powerful and it ought to be our portion. It's the only thing that is sufficient. And this is one way that affliction is a teacher. So our sin has become a teacher for those who are redeemed. Our affliction is a teacher. And all of this, of course, is under the heading of our good God, 68. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. And so the Lord does. Patiently, consistently instruct us through means of his Holy Spirit, through his word, through the fellowship of the saints, through the proclamation of the gospel, and so many other ways. Patiently guides us. Think of Peter in 2 Peter. We've been studying, of course, his epistle. 
And he saw it as a worthy cause, goal for his life up until he died to remind the church of the basics over and over again. And what was this? This was God's calling on Peter to teach him. God, through his servant, was teaching, reminding his church over and over again of the ground and the foundation and the assurance upon which their soul hinged. They needed it because they were facing afflictions, just as the psalmist in Psalm 119 was. But our good Lord provides these kinds of things to teach us. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, ministers, the Holy Spirit, His Word, circumstances, your parents, young people in your life, those who have been influential, others, disciple makers, people who are mentors for you and so forth. All of these things are God's ways, manifold ways, incredible and awesome ways and sufficient ways that our good Lord teaches us. Point number three, embracing the Word of God. Embrace the Word of God and its authority. Embracing the Word of God and its teachers. And thirdly, we are fortified to endure affliction when we embrace the Word of God and its discriminating character. This goes along with that point on judgment I had referenced earlier. Notice in 69 and 70 these words. There's a contrast here, two of them. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Lies versus precepts. 70. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. A fat and unfeeling hearts versus delightful laws of God. Those are two contrasts that the author draws. And by these ways, he illustrates the discriminating character of God's word. Such an important point and one that's directly opposed today. I've offered you in the past this axiom. It's just my discernment on what's important to our culture these days. I submit the following. It's become the highest civic virtue, perhaps, celebrated today, is to champion the cause of marginalized groups, moral absolutes notwithstanding. That is to throw away all discrimination, all discernment. Uh, This month is labeled so-called Pride Month, and I couldn't help but notice as I was uh, checking my email yesterday that every server was emblazoned with the co-opting of the sign originally given to Noah that God would not flood this earth again. And it gets me angry every time I see that sign perverted and applied to those who say that every color on the flag represents every perverse, self-styled sexual identity, and we're obligated, if we are virtuous, to embrace them all equally. No, the Word of God has discriminating character. It tells us the difference between perversion and holiness, righteousness and and, and lawlessness, between what is holy and just and valuable and what is degraded and debased and wretched. And this is what the scriptures say in other passages like Hebrews 4.12, which perhaps you know well. The word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, dividing asunder soul and spirit. The implement of a sword is meant to divide between two things. You know, something like a sword or a scalpel is what we call it, and a surgeon goes in. And if a surgeon cannot discriminate one organ from another... If he cannot tell that finely perfect and amazingly engineered membrane that God has established between one organ and the other, it's a difference of life and death for his patient. And that scalpel and the trained and knowledgeable hand of the surgeon divides the cancer from the heart or whatever needs to be removed, that malignant tumor from the brain. And in that illustration, we have a, a 
something of a picture of what the author of Hebrews says the Word of God is like. The Word of God comes as a sword, as a scalpel, and it cuts away the cancer of our failed sinful assumptions and understanding so that we as a people are not totally corrupted. And the Word of God comes in and discriminates and says, this is righteous, this is true. Marriage is mine by design, and I've reserved it for the covenant bonds of one man and one woman till death do them part. We will celebrate that at a vow renewal ceremony, those of you who will be attending later on today, and a glorious thing it will be. It will recognize that there's a difference between the lies of culture and the precepts of our God. Have you noticed the lies are always changing? There's no way you could live by them with any consistency. They might be different next month. Another color added to the flag. Another symbol added to someone's Facebook or Instagram page. or Another uh, cause that we're supposed to celebrate without uh, any reference to a higher morality. God's precepts are not like that. They're an anchor in the storm, a foundation under a strong house. They are an immovable standard by which all other doctrines and truths, and values, and ideas, and trends are to be judged. The insolent, they resort to lies. But those who love the Lord place their whole heart and all of their investment in the morality and the understanding and the truth of God's word, his precepts. Meanwhile, verse 70, those who embrace lies, they end up having a seared conscience. And I submit this is what this picture means. Their heart is unfeeling like fat. Um, there was a commentator, and he illustrated this idiom this way. He uh, has the picture in his mind of a pig. Um, as it is to be seen in pigs who pricked through the skin with a bodkin, and slowly, as long as the bodkin touches only the fat, do not feel the prick until it reaches the flesh. So from what I'm told by this example is the fat layer on a pig, here we go talking about pigs again, can be so thick that you can actually stab your knife into that fat and there's no nerves, there's no nerve center there. And the pig just goes on its merry way, unfeeling. And you have to push all the way through that fat layer until you touch the nerve center. And so the pig may be being injured or you know, being attacked and is none the wiser. This is a picture of a seared conscience of a hard heart. Inability to feel the pain of transgressing God's law. It's like a leprosy of the soul. Uh, sir, you know, people tell us that one of the great dangers of leprosy is it takes out your immune system so you don't know whether you're damaging your organs or your fingers or that kind of thing. And losing your pain sensors is like that. It can be one of the most dangerous conditions. And morally, that's what you risk if your heart is fat with the teachings of the world. Their heart is unfeeling like fat. Well, what's the antidote to this? What's the opposite, the contrast? I delight in your law. The nerve center of my moral understanding is pricked when I hear the gospel. Uh, take a reassurance when you hear the truth spoken, you feel guilty for your sin last week, that your conscience is working. That's a gift. That's the Holy Spirit at work. Many of us in our sin are fat like pigs, and you have to stab really hard for them to even feel guilty for transgressing God's law. Do not be like them. Delight in God's law. And therefore, the immune system of your soul will be strengthened according to that which is true. Finally, this morning, we're fortified to endure affliction like false witness by embracing the Word of God in its authority, its teachers, 
embracing the Word of God in its discriminating character, and finally, its surpassing value. What a glorious closing pair of verses 71 and 72. Our psalmist extols the Lord in saying, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. The psalmist recognizes and embraces the Word of God in its surpassing value. The Word of God is so powerful that it can redeem affliction. It could turn what the enemy meant to destroy you into a great blessing from Almighty God. It can turn what the enemy schemed to destroy the Messiah into the very means whereby souls can be saved, his death on Calvary. It can take the worst and heinous of sinners and turn them into a trophy of grace. Grace as they repent and place faith in Christ alone. It can take the waywardness of a once lost soul and lead them back to their father's house to embrace his rule, his precepts, his loving and redeeming arms. The word of God is awesome. It is good for me that I was afflicted. Have you come to that point in your life? Recognizing, yes, my life has been plagued with certain challenges, hardship, and trial. But would not change them. I would not trade them in for the life of, of ease. I would not trade them in for what all those glossy advertisement promise on television commercials and all those you know, Facebook posts or whatever people post on their social media accounts. This picture perfect indulgence of all of the creature comforts that this life has to offer independent and without respect to the God that made them. No, affliction is better than that if it reminds me that God is my portion if he restores unto me my moral, my spiritual immune system so I know the difference between right and wrong, if it teaches me that a life that is strong and even a nation that is enduring is built upon the word of God and not my own whim and fancy, or not the idolatrous, high priestly type experts of our hour that worship at the altar of neo-paganism, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. What do we value? Do we value the law of God above any other measure? It's a precious law indeed. Psalm 19 shares this sentiment, does it not? That was our worship text this morning. Maybe another argument for a similar author, David, uh, writes in Psalm 19 just to remind you what Isaac read with us this morning, the precepts of the Lord are right, verse 8, rejoicing the heart, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. In verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. The Lord turns us through the teaching, through the authority, and through the revelation of His Holy Word, even in this proclamation today, back to that which is of ultimate value. If there's anything in our life that we are tempted to elevate, whether it's physical riches, you know, comfort that financial condition, you know, that a strong financial position brings, or you know, independence from the ebb and flow of challenges like inflation due to, you know, a healthy bank account or any other of a number of things that people rely on for assurance in troubled times. If any of these compete with the value of God's law in our lives, in our hearts, if they are the thousands of pieces of gold and silver that we would prefer if we really were honest, then let us repent 
and turn to the teacher of God's word and ask him to change us and, uh, into the image of Christ and to give us a perspective of what's true from his holy scripture. I want to close with one more quote this morning. This is Matthew Henry as he summarizes this portion. He says, quote, However God has dealt with us, he has dealt with us better than we deserve. And all in love and for our good, many have knowledge but little judgment. Those who have both are fortified against the snares of Satan and furnished for the service of God. We are most apt to wander from God when we are easy in the world. You could say comfortable in the world. God visits his people with affliction that they may learn his statutes. Not only God's promises, but even his law, his precepts, though hard uh, to ungodly men, are desirable and profitable because they lead us with safety and delight unto eternal life. Amen. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you have been so kind and patient with us. We thank you, as the author of Hebrews goes on to say, that in our affliction and discipline, you are treating us not as abandoned and lost ones, not as the wicked and hell-bent sinner, but indeed as sons and daughters of the Almighty. Lord, I pray that you would give us an appreciation for your correcting hand, which brings even difficult times to lead us away from self-worship and idol worship back to our one true first love and sovereign Savior, Jesus Christ. Pray that you would use the proclamation of your scripture, the fellowship of the saints, Lord, to accomplish this. And I pray as we see by your grace, even this evening, many of us, some more, uh, uh, another picture of your relationship to us through the redeeming work of the Messiah, bridegroom, ransoming for himself a bride, us, his church, his people, that, would be, that we would be encouraged more still. We thank you for these graces, these gold and silver pieces, and so much more that you've given us in the fellowship of the saints and in the proclamation of your word. May we take it to heart for the advance of the kingdom of Jesus Christ and the glory of our great God and Savior, King of kings and Lord of lords. It's in his name we pray. Amen.